If I could uh, apply a few introductory remarks to this passage of Scripture, I might look at Hebrews chapter 3, verse 1, for instance. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 1 contains this little phrase, two words, consider Jesus. And what the writer of Hebrews uh, was saying when he urged us to consider Jesus was, again, not to be satisfied with a glancing look at our Savior, because that isn't considering Jesus, but to realize, as the writer of Hebrews realized, that to know Christ is to love Him. If you knew Christ, you would love Him. If we understood Christ, we would love Him because He first loved us. And that would be part, certainly, of the thesis that we have here that the Apostle John has written to us in this letter, this first epistle to John. I trust that we all find it fitting that the very best friend on earth, apparently, of our Lord Jesus Christ has written this letter. Because we understand that it was said of one apostle and one apostle alone that he is the one who Jesus loved. I find it very fitting that the apostle John is the one that wrote this letter, in this letter, in 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 through 21, in this letter, and that's one of the reasons why it's a little bit difficult to read, is the word love, or derivative of the word love, shows up 29 times in these verses. 29 times. And some of you recognize that, uh, that the language of Greek is far more descriptive than the language of English. And you might be thinking to yourself, I wonder what word was used for that. And I'll go ahead and answer it for you. It's always and only agape. Beginning with the very first word in the section, beloved. Always and only. The pinnacle of unconditional love that God has for us and that we are to have for others is this word. Translated, unconditional love. So we begin here really in verse 7 with this idea of knowing God. Of knowing God. Verse 7. Let us love one another for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God. And knows God. And knows God. True knowledge of God necessarily produces love in us. Where there is no knowledge of God, there is no love. If we don't love, we simply cannot make good our claim that we know God. Now again, as I said, uh, uh, in a slightly humorous way, the math works here. And what the Bible is saying is very simply this. If you claim to know God and don't love your brother, then the reality and the factual information of that is that it is not true. 
You do not know God. Now, it is reasonable for us to understand this passage and the idea here as certainly something that we receive by degrees. The sense of this passage isn't that it is some sort of diode or some kind of valve which is only on or only off. We understand that. We should understand that. But to the extent that I know God, then I can follow with loving my brother. And so if the love of brother is scanty and meager, then the knowledge of God is scanty and eager. The things are mathematically proportional. And that's the purpose that this one that is referred to as the one whom Jesus loved. That is what he is telling us here. We have before us all of the glories of this idea that before the world began, God knew us and loved us. And the fruit of that is that we love God and we love brother. Verse 8, anyone who does not love does not know God. Again, that's one of the reasons why it seems perhaps that this passage is a little difficult to read. It, its statements come like sword thrusts. And they're so abrupt that we, we kind of catch our breath. And we say, whoa, 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 wait a minute. What are you saying about God? What are you saying about me? We look here at verse 8, God is love. What is the nature of God? What is his nature? What is he like? What does he do? Who is he? What is the nature of God? We've got a few cows in my place. And one of those cows is Ida May. She's our milk cow. She's a Jersey. And the nature of Ida May is this. She's in charge. She puts you where she wants you. That's her nature. If you don't know that, you might get hurt. But nonetheless, unless you're Maggie, she does what she wants. The nature of God is to love men. It's to love men. That's the nature of God. That's His makeup. That certainly isn't His only attribute, but we understand that the nature of God is to love men and women and boys and girls. But we understand that our unredeemed flesh, our nature, is to love ourselves. It's to love ourselves. That's our nature. When we fall, we fall down, not up. It's our nature to love ourselves. And at justification by the Lord Jesus Christ, it is still our nature to love ourselves. And we see that this residue must be cleaned by the process of sanctification. New habits made. And this is what God is empowering us to do here by the power of the Holy Spirit as He exhorts us in this epistle of 1 John.
Very simply, if you don't love, then you don't have faith. Thus, you don't know God. If you don't love your brother, then you don't have faith. And you don't love God. It's like this, children. I want you to think about the sun for a minute. Everybody thinking about the sun right now? This big giant star? Perhaps you know the name of that star. It's got a funny name. I'm not going to name it now. Imagine if you could separate the light from the sun from the heat of the sun. Do you think you could do that? You could say, oh, I only want the light of the sun today. It's the middle of July in Texas. I'll take the light, thank you very much, but I don't want the heat. Can you do that? No. We can't separate the light of the sun from the heat of the sun, nor can we separate the love of the brethren from the love that God has for us. The two things are inseparable. And that's what John is getting at here. And this is also the argument of the verses 15, 16, and 17 of chapter 4. Verse 9 here, and this is, in this the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. This word manifest, children, is a difficult word. We don't use it very much. It has to do with evidence, the evidence of God's love. It has to do with how God proved His love. The Bible says in verse 9, that God sent and did not spare His own Son. Verse 9, you see the little word, His only Son. His only Son. Why Why the term only there? Well, let's think about this. Does it not... Does it not qualify the love of God to something that is so beyond our comprehension that God the Father had but one Son? And that His expression, His greatest expression of love to an unredeemed people is that He would send His only Son. And not only send, but He wouldn't spare His only Son from that which was necessary for our own redemption. He took the Prince of Heaven and placed Him in a cattle stall. It's as if the human became a worm. And so, this is the principal evidence of the love of God is the Lord Jesus Christ, immeasurable, most marvelous. Have you contemplated the love of God for you today? Have you considered the love of God for you? Have you considered 
before the foundation of the world that God loved you and that He is loving you now and that He has set in motion the very means by which He would publish, He would proclaim this love to you in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now as we consider, as we move on here to verse 10, we see the cause of our love to God, that He loved us first and sent His Son to be a propitiation for our sins. Children, we've run across another difficult word. Propitiation. It's even hard to say. But it has to do with this idea of satisfaction. With the acceptance of what it is the Lord Jesus has done for us. And it's important that we understand that before Christ came, we were also loved. We were loved by the Father. And because we were so loved by the Father, you might say, well, then why did Christ come? Because... The coming of the Lord Jesus, as the Bible says, is the principal evidence of the love of the Father in the Son. Verse 10, in this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son. Now, we run against perhaps a difficult part. Because you see, when we think about someone loving us, what do we often think about? That person loves me. Is it not difficult for sinful human beings to have the reflex of as they sense the love of God or even the love of others, that we consider that we are lovable. We may even think in our own minds, we might say something like this or think something, how how could they not love me? I'm so lovable. I'm so... I'm so attractive to them. I'm so kindly. I'm so beautiful. I'm so sweet. All these things. But when we look at the love that God has for us, we, we run into and collide with the perhaps unfortunate fact, unfortunate for our own sinful selves, that God's love for us... Are you ready for this? ...has nothing to do with you. Let that sink in a minute. It's not about you. It's not about who you are. It's not about what you've done. It's it's not about who you will be. It's not about who you know. It's not about how you look. It's not... None of these, God's unconditional love settled on us before the foundation of the world. How could it really have anything to do with you, right? 
Now, were we to continue to dig a little deeper, we might, like the Puritans, divide up the love of God into two parts, the love of benevolence and the love of complacency, and we certainly should recognize that one of these grows and the other is constant. But that is a story for another day. The reality is, and this is what the Apostle John wants for us to know, is that we are truly and deeply loved by God. That's the point. You see, again, we're inclined to place conditions upon those who love us, and we're inclined to work out the math, as it were, and because we're fixated on the nature of love being about being lovely, we surmise that because God loves us, we must be lovely. But again, this is... The way that God loves us is about His own love to us. It's not about who we are before He loves us. But certainly His love has an effect in our lives. We've got to get cause and effect right. Calvin indicates that when we figure God's love for us to have something to do with us apart from Christ, we are, and I quote, Mad to our own ruin. Okay, so Calvin didn't write in English. But nonetheless, when we fix the love of God on something other than what Christ has done for us, we are mad to our own ruin. It's not just a little error, is what Calvin is saying, right? It's calamity. It's absolute misunderstanding to our own ruin. His love toward us is not a response to anything in us, but it's initiated by God before we were born. Alienation and discord would remain between us and God until the intervention of Christ. Now, we've considered God's love. Now, let's consider this grand purpose for which God loves us, beginning in verse 11. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. A grand purpose for God's love, that we should love one another. A call to love as God loves. We've been loved freely. We've been loved unconditionally. Often our love to others is nothing but self-love. This may be hard to take. Is our love not for hire? Does it not have mercenary aspects? Expecting something and flaming angry if we don't get it the way we've defined. Our unredeemed flesh wants to define love. We want to place conditions on love. We want to say, in this is love. Right? But that's not what the beloved apostle is referring to here. Self-love can go by other names, such as respect or leadership, just as haughty can go by the name of courage, or false peace can go by the name of encourager. 
We're called here to love as God loves. I draw your attention to 1 Corinthians 13. Beginning in verse 4, the Bible says, Love is patient. Now, again, here, the Apostle John, he, he is drawing us into a recognition of this relationship. Now, what we have is the apprentice. We have the master and we have the apprentice. God the Father being the master of love. And what he's saying, he's taking our hands, right? He's putting it on the tool. This is a hammer, this is a nail. And this is what the Apostle John is doing for us now. He's helping us to understand the idea here is that we are to love as God loves. And so 1 Corinthians 13 is a, is a revelation to us to understand. And so again, the Master, the Father in Heaven, is taking us as the apprentice and He's saying, he's saying this, this is it, love is patient. You say, no, 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 the time has run out. The Master says, love is patient. He says, love is kind. Love doesn't envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. Verse 5, it doesn't insist on its own way. Again, the same idea of unconditionality, the love of God for us. It's not about us. This is otherworldly. This is divine love. The unredeemed have a mercenary love. They have something behind all of their expressions of love. What's in it for me? What will it gain me? What will I have after this? How much should I invest? What's the meter for this love? This is a half a cup of love for this one and three quarters of a cup for this one. It doesn't appear to be what the Apostle Paul is referring to here as he reveals to us the love of the Master. We are the students. And we shouldn't miss, as we think and reflect back on 1 John, that this knowing, there's great emphasis placed on discipleship, being a learner. How do you know Christ? How did you learn Christ? The Apostle Paul discusses that in Ephesians chapter 4. To be redeemed is to become a learner. And he says in Ephesians 4.17, he's referring to their own lives, and he says, this isn't how you learned Christ. 
You learn Christ in the context of His unconditional love. You learn Christ in what is the right biblical alternative to lying, to stealing, to unfaithfulness. He is the master, worthy apprentice. It's not irritable or resentful. You say, I had a hard day. I didn't sleep last night. Love is not irritable or resentful. Your ears perk up when you hear that gossip. Love doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. This is the love of God. So God manifests His love for us in His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. God manifests His love in us by way of our love for the brethren. His love to us in Christ, our love for others by way of our love for the brethren. Verse 12, no one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and His love is perfected in us. This is a mathematical proof. It's very simple. You claim to love God. And God says, do you love the brethren? And you say, yes, I do. And He says, do you love God? And you say, I love the brethren. There is but one proof. And that's what He says. Do you love the brethren? That's the idea. That's what He's getting at here. The manifestation. It should be our prayer and our longing that when people walk through the doors... They come into our presence and they say this. These people know God. These people are loved by God. These people are known by God. For yet one reason. One reason alone. They love the brethren. They love one another. They love one another. That's the manifestation of God's love. It's the revelation. It's the, it's the sense that, yes, I come into this room and I sense the love of God. I know it is here. Why do I know it's here? Because of the love that we have one for another. The wife of a submariner knows when her husband's home because she can smell him. Because he smells like hydraulic oil. And he is rightly directed to leave his bags at the front door, outside. It's not an offensive smell, but it's a pervasive smell. It's everywhere. The manifestation of God's love in us is our love one for another. 
And again, we, we want to make excuses. We want to say this and that. And God says, no, 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 no. Go back. There is but one proof. There is but one proof. And it takes into account all of your sins, all of your stresses. If this is deemed easy by human flesh, we fool ourselves. In reality, we found this to be most difficult, to yield ourselves to the power of God such that we exhibit brotherly love. It's not easy. It's impossible. It's divine. When a man is killed, where do the police want to look? Where's his wife? The people that we love most. The people that we love most. We recognize this reality. Everyone's doing fine, right? Wait till you get to know them. As you get to know the better. Oh. We need divine love. As you get to know me better. You say yes. Thank you. I must lean onto the resources of my Savior. To love this man well. That's no excuse, right? It's no excuse. But it's divine love that is set before us. Often the more time we spend around someone, the more difficult we find expressions of brotherly love. We must lean on Christ. This is Luther's concept of vocation, is that we express and expend ourselves and tap very quickly into the resources only available by our union with the Lord Jesus Christ as we spend ourselves and exhaust all that we have on our brothers and sisters. To recognize our unloveliness is not an admonition to stay that way or an admission of the futility of growth. We're naturally inclined to view ourselves as difficult. We're not naturally inclined to view ourselves as difficult to love. But the one who loves us best loves us anyway. In heaven, I'm persuaded that we will know one another, as the Bible says, and we'll love each other anyway. That's where we're going. That's where we're headed. And so the more practice we get here on earth, the better. Verse 13, to abide with God is to love the brethren by the power of the Spirit. When we do not love the brethren, we cannot be abiding 
with God. When's the last time you asked God to forgive you for not loving someone better? Does the Lord not reveal to us in His Word that we owe one another a debt of love? That we have this debt, we have this thing that we owe. We, we, we come up to people and we may ask ourselves, do I owe you anything? The Bible answers that question for us and the answer is yes. You owe them love. Even unconditional love. It is divine. It is divine. Verse 17, a reference to our adoption in Christ. By this love perfected, by this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. We're partakers of divine adoption when we resemble God as children resemble their father. This confidence or this assurance is invaluable because without it we're miserable and have no assurance. And I'm persuaded, as is John Calvin, that this is also associated with verse 18, this concept of fear. How ready are we to confidently assert our union with Christ and so declare our own approval of the level of our love to others? Hear me. It's not so difficult to receive and understand rightly that we are loved by God. He sets before us this idea that we should seek assurance and more full assurance day by day. We should seek to check and deepen our faith day by day. And we understand again, even as John says mathematically, that God's love to us is connected with our love to brother. And so will we... Defend the way we love others by saying, well, God loves me. And I know that because God loves me that I must love others, and so this all works out. And you may say, well, I'm satisfied with the level with which I love others. Would you like to know God better? Because if you're not growing in your relationship to Christ, then it is reasonable to expect that you will not grow in your love for others. One more look at verse 18. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. Calvin readily admits that most Bible students understand this to be the difference between a sweet reverence to the Father in heaven and a trembling fear. And I am persuaded with Calvin that that is an idea that should be rejected in this passage. Not that it's an idea that should be rejected because I think there's something else for us here. And it has to do with a tranquil heart. Persuaded that the idea expressed is that when the love of God is by us, seen and known by faith, peace is given to our consciences so that they no longer tremble and fear. Are you the owner of a disturbed conscience?
Is your mind at rest? Is it content with your relationship, your knowledge of God and the brethren? Or is it a place that could never be described as tranquil? The idea here is a tranquil heart fleeing to God as to a quiet harbor, safe and free of shipwreck and tempests. The alternative is a heart tormented and troubled, a mind at enmity with itself and with others. Calvin's idea here, and I do agree, as if it mattered whether I agree with Calvin. Unbelief results in a disturbed mind. To know the love of God is to have a tranquil heart. I would direct your attention no further than the fourth chapter of the book of James to understand what the Apostle John is saying here. There is a direct connection between being known by God and then to know God. And to be loved by God and to love God. And then to love others and see as the fruit of that a peaceful heart. Let us pray.